Hi, welcome back to another episode of Rambling with Ryu. I'm Bean. And I'm Nancy. And today we're going to debunk some myths about disabilities. And misconceptions about spinal cord injury as well. So yep. the focus is more spinal cord injury today. Yep. All right, let's uh, talk about some stuff. All right, so myth number one. Once you're paralyzed, that's it. You'll never recover function. Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) If that myth was correct, we wouldn't have a business. (laughs) So very true. But a lot of people do think that. Yeah. So what do we say to the people who have that misconception? I mean, I think we we usually tell them about the studies that have been done on neuroplasticity and neurorecovery, right? There's so many anecdotal uh, stories out there too of recovery, but there are studies done that scientific journals have been, you know, have produced mm-hmm. and basically we educate them right on what the central nervous system does and how it actually is. You know, the thought process has always been that the central nervous system doesn't regenerate. Right. And that's just, I think that that has stuck in the minds of the medical system here in Canada, at least for a very long time and still here. Mm-hmm. So the recovery of function, it's not necessarily full recovery. It may be partial recovery. Mm-hmm. It recovery's on a spectrum. And mm-hmm. I think that's an important thing to let everybody know as well, right? Yeah. Is I mean, you're partially recovering, yeah. right? As we mentioned in previous episodes, you're recovering paraplegic, mm-hmm. right? So recovery itself is is a giant spectrum. Yeah, and I think people have issue with the word recovery, right? Because they feel like it's it's all or nothing, right? You're either have a spinal cord injury or you're fully able-bodied like there's no in between but there's so much that's in between right like whether it's a little bit of hand function you get back or a little bit of core being able to cough Mm -hmm. right simple things that like a lot of people take for granted these are the things that make somebody's life so much more valuable and so much easier and uh like to us that's what recovery is Mm -hmm. right but I feel like the general public is kind of like, well... Why aren't you walking? Why aren't you walking? <laughs> Recovery's not all about walking. No, it's right? not. We have, we have many people who come through our doors, like our, our name is Process Recovery Center. Mm-hmm. But everybody comes through the door with different goals, mm-hmm. right? Goals are very intimate, very personal. Um, yes, some of them may be walking, but yep. that's not everybody. No. And it's also, that's not the end-all, be-all mm-hmm. either, right? And I feel like that's also a big misconception and part of the stigma mm-hmm. in the able-bodied world, right? Well, oh, well, you know, a, a lot of our friends, our clients who have spinal cord injuries who are walking with either arm crutches or canes or a walker, um, you know, they often get kind of discriminated against because people are just like, well, not discriminated against, maybe just singled out, I suppose, or thought over because people are just like, oh, well, you're walking, so you're fine. Right? Like, you're fine. There's nothing else to worry about. You're fine. Mm-hmm. On that note, so neurorecovery uh, can only happen for the newly injured. That's another common misconception that you mm-hmm. have to be a fresh injury within that first year to get any sort of recovery. Or what you get back in the first year to two years is all you're going to get back. Yeah. Which is completely false. Completely false. <laughs> right? From our own personal experience, from yeah. the experience of many other in the disability community, in the yeah. spinal cord injury world. But then there's also the research as well. Like, yes, the research does focus on the newly injured. I think it's, um, they're more available. It's easier to access because mm-hmm. they're right in that acute care setting where they can be like, sign you up for that study because yeah. they have access to you. Whereas once you're out in the community, you're a little more isolated. You're not as... I guess, often able to travel as, as mm-hmm. readily and easily. So when you're in that hospital setting, it's very easy to do yeah. or participate in that study aspect. Well, and you're more in the loop too, right? Mm-hmm. Once you get discharged and you're out of the whole, 
you know, every day this is your life kind of thing. And especially if you live rurally, right, mm-hmm. then you're more out of the loop with what research studies are available. And most research, research studies, a lot of them, do want you to come in five days a week for 12 weeks or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of people who can commit to that are newly injured. Yeah, so recovery can happen throughout the entire spectrum of your life. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, personally, I've worked with, you know, several people that are years post-injury. I mean, the longest post-injury was 14 years post-injury. And Mm -hmm. amazing gains, incredible progress. And, I mean, not to say it's going to happen for everyone, but you can still make progress regardless of where you are. Agreed. And I think that people just don't really think about it on a cellular level of how many times our cells are splitting and dividing and constantly renewing themselves, right? And so we need to take advantage of that. And so the body that you had 20 years ago is not the same physical body that you have now, right? So like if that change is there, then change I think is possible at all times. And like you said, we've, we've proven it with other people who have been you know, injured for a long time. I myself am almost eight years out and I'm still seeing changes on a weekly basis almost. Yeah, I think it's important for people to know that change goes both ways, yeah. right? You can regress yeah. as well as progress, yeah. right? So if you can regress and then gain it back, then that almost that proves basically <laughs> that change yeah. can happen at any point. Yeah. So that's an important thing to be aware of is it's maintenance as well, yeah. right? So it's not always we're going for the next gains. We're trying to maintain what we have. Yeah. And if we get more progress, that's fantastic. Yeah. Like life happens. Mm-hmm. Life happens to everybody, right? And you put sometimes your self-care gets put on the back burner and you do regress. And if you do, it's okay. It mm-hmm. happens. This is part of life, the ebbs and flows. But yeah, like Nancy said, if you lost it, then means you can regain it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a big myth that we need to debunk that, uh, you need to be newly injured. And the fact that, you know, a lot of our the medical professionals have been had been saying whatever you get back in the first two years is what you're going to get back and you're not going to see anything past that. And that's somewhere, something that where the language needs to change. Yeah, I mean, I think where some of it stems from is with a peripheral nerve injury, right? Mm-hmm. So the the uh, ways in which the nerves recover are completely different in terms of the central nervous system versus the peripheral. The peripheral, we've understood and we know how it uh, changes and progress and heals. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is it does heal. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the central nervous system, there's still so much unknown. Yeah. Right. So we can't give any hard fast. <laughs> yeah. This is the time limit. And this is the, the time frame in which you're only going to see that progress. Mm-hmm. And like, I get people want to know, right? I mean, I was one of those people. I I remember thinking like, I wish I could fast forward five years Mm -hmm. and just to see where I'm at, right? But, and people, so people, when you're in that situation and you're very vulnerable and you're, you want answers. Mm -hmm. And so I understand why the medical community is like, you want answers. Here's a very hard, hard and fast answer for you, Mm -hmm. right? And I mean, it kind of placates some people, but that same answer will also like, you know, take a lot of hope away for people who are coming up on their second year rebirth day mm-hmm. and are saying, well, if this is all I've got, then this is all I've got. So anyway. bottom line, it's for everybody. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. Um, recovery can happen at any point in your journey. So yeah. it's never too late. It's never too late. All right. And then myth number three, your doctor or physical therapist can predict your level of recovery. Um, if they have a crystal ball, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> we don't know the future. <laughs> I, know. I don't know. 
I mean, maybe if they have like a psychic working in consultation with them, they might be able to predict. But no, how do they know? They don't. And I mean, even here at Ryu, um, when people first come to us, we say the only thing we guarantee is an increased quality of life. Yeah. The physical side of things, we can't predict. We have no idea. Yeah. And we said that from the very beginning, even with just me and you working out, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we don't know what's going to come of this. We don't know if it's going to work, but we're going to try. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? And then we'll just see whatever comes back, comes back. Mm-hmm. And there's no way of knowing. I wish there was. Yeah. Right? If we had that magic wand, oh man. <laughs> It'd be nice. We'd be millionaires. <laughs> We'd be millionaires. <laughs> yeah, trillionaires. Yeah. <laughs> we're Jeff Bezos, but just kidding. <laughs> we don't have this wand. <laughs> but yeah, whatever comes back, comes back. And it is kind of at random. And um, But whatever does come back can and most likely will impact your quality of life. Yeah. And I mean, that being said, like many of our clients regain some core, they mm-hmm. regain some extremities, whether that be a bit of arms, a bit of legs. Yeah. I mean, if you work it, chances are you're going to see some change. Yep. Yeah. And even people like, you know, we've had people say to us that, oh, you work with somebody who has like a severe brain injury mm-hmm. or who is on the severe side of the The medical system or the medical diagnosis. (laughs) We don't like using those kinds of words here because here people are just people. Yeah. And everybody deserves for you to believe in them. Yeah. So those are the people that they kind of, you know, push to the side because, well, what's the point of working with them if they're not going to regain anything back? Right. Or they've gone so far that like, well, we can't help you Mm -hmm. anymore. And like to them, what we have said in the past is that people are people, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we don't know what's going to come back, mm-hmm. but we want to give them that opportunity to find out. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that we really stand behind. And uh, again, another thing that we need to change. Yeah, exactly. I mean, giving them the opportunity to even explore their environment and understand it and to open up their world. Because mm-hmm. there's... Um, we'll just give an example, locked-in syndrome, Mm -hmm. right? So they're cognitively intact, completely aware of what's going on around them, but they can't interact with their environment. I mean, how frustrating would that be for you where you hear everything the doctors are saying, you see the interactions, you're experiencing it through a glass window. Mm -hmm. You can't touch it, you can't respond to it, but you are fully there. So how frustrating would that be for you if you're in that situation, the medical system has written you off, saying... That's it. Your life. You're a vegetable. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Right. So I mean, and it and it's those you know heartwarming turns that we see from the yeah. other side as yeah. we've seen a client come out of from being locked in. Yep. Right. So you know we don't work the miracles. We provide opportunities, mm-hmm. and the miracles happen. Yep. We you know my osteopath said it best when he said I don't help I don't heal people. I allow their body, I give their body the support it needs to heal itself, right? And I feel like that's what we do here too, is we don't heal you. Your body's doing the healing. Your brain is doing the work. Mm -hmm. But we're going to give you the tools and support you need to like make that happen. So yeah, I don't think there's any way that your doctor or a physical therapist, no matter how much experience they have, no matter how many people they've seen with the same injury that you have, can predict what's going to come back and what isn't. There's just, they can try, but they're not God. No, definitely not. (laughs) All right, which brings us to myth number four. Rehabilitation ends when you leave the hospital. No. (laughs) It continues. It continues and it should ramp up once you leave the hospital. So I think many people see the decrease in services from either the the hospital services Mm -hmm. or the publicly funded services and then 
What, what is there in the community? And there is a lack of knowledge of what is out there, what services there are available. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's, you know, what perpetuates the misconception. It that is. Yeah. Rehab ends, right? right? There's nowhere to go. <laughs> therefore, this is my life. I must move on. Yeah. And that's why they teach you, okay, we're going to get you confident in your life in your wheelchair and mm -hmm. independent. And then you're out in the world and you're on your own. Mm -hmm. And same thing happened to me. Same thing happened to all of our other clients, which, you know, really was one of the reasons what pushed us to open Ryu here, right? Mm -hmm. Is because there is nowhere to go. Yes, there's accessible gyms around. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's FES bikes all over the city, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a wait list for those. And, uh, you know, you're working out by yourself at these other gyms, right? And mm -hmm. at these other centers. And so it's not really... A lot of people need the motivation and the help mm -hmm. and someone to kick them in the butt and tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Rehab should continue and should get more aggressive once you leave the hospital. You, most people do do outpatient um, through the rehab hospital wherever they're located. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, we believe that it's very important that you continue afterwards. And, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and it's not just going out to other places to get the rehab. It's in your own home environment mm -hmm. too, right? That's where you can really take what the lessons you've learned and apply them, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, that's the nice, one of the nice things clients like about our center is we teach them skills to go back out into the gym or out back home and be able to apply the principles of neuro recovery within their own environment. Yes. So giving them the skills to continue on. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I feel like you learn those kinds of things in the hospital when you're there, right? But you're also in such a mindset of stress, overwhelm, and just like confusion, insecurity, right? And so when on, often when people leave the rehab hospital, they leave with about 10% of the knowledge that was thrown at them in their stay. And when you leave from the hospital and you don't remember all of these resources that you can access and stuff, uh, there's a lot of disconnect there and then trying to get back into the system is another headache on it in itself, right? You know, we're going to change that game here in Edmonton or in Alberta especially, right? Because that's not, that's not the way of the future. That's not the way things are going. And in this day and age, every rehab hospital, every acute care hospital should be promoting health and they're not which is the reason this, you know, the system is in the state that it's in. But, uh, we are going to, I think, lead that change and make people really realize the importance of what they do here and what they do at their house. Mm -hmm. All right. So that come, brings us to myth number five. Attitude doesn't matter when it comes to rehabilitation. That is false. <laughs> so the more positive an attitude you have, the more you're going to get out of it. Yeah. Um, that's just the bottom line. It doesn't mean you're not going to have your bad days. It doesn't mean you always have to be the cheerful person, but mm -hmm. it's, it's your attitude towards recovery mm -hmm. and towards your rehab. Um, if you're hating it in a bad mood, you're not going to get out of it as much because you're not putting into it as yeah. much. And I think that's the biggest thing is you get what you put into it and that it gives it back. Well, it's a law of attraction, right? Like attracts like. The more positive you, things you think, the more positive things happen in your life. And I think it's important to talk about like toxic positivity, right? Because there's that positivity where you're just not genuinely being positive. You are covering up the hardships with, it's okay, I'm going to be fine. 
I'm going to go through this door and it's going to be great. Life is always greener on the other side, right? Where it's like you're not really believing it. Yeah, so it's almost that state of denial. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, it's great to be have a positive attitude and um, think that way. But for a lot of people, it's not realistic, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people have a hard time uh, living in that positive mindset and... I think that's just how some people are, right? Some mm-hmm. people are just have a negative mindset. And so when they, those people come in here and, you know, we talk to them and stuff, it's, it's nice to see that they're able to, you know, slowly and with effort and with thought are able to change their thought process. Maybe not fully, mm-hmm. but, you know, we've seen a lot of people who have, who were consistently negative, who, you know, are able to see the brighter side of things. And once you start to believe in yourself, that's when like the real recovery really starts to happen. Yeah. So when we talk about um, the positivity and the negativity, it's the internal conversation. So mm-hmm. regardless of whatever you're putting out, you know, the outward appearance, because yeah. people can hide a lot, right? Um, but when it boils down to it, what's your internal dialogue? Mm-hmm. And that's the stuff that sneaks out through workouts and you get start to see what are they actually thinking about when they're doing all this stuff. And just the little words like, I can't, mm-hmm. right? The number of times you say, I can't in a session, right? We've had some clients that come in and say it throughout, and that's something we nip in the bud right away is yeah. you need to change that, yeah. right? And and the confidence that people get or clients get from changing that internal dialogue yeah. from I can't to I will, or I am confident from I can't do that, right? Yeah. So it's it's changing the inner dialogue, which mm-hmm. is super important, and it, and it it takes time. It takes a while. Yep. But and, and it takes effort. work. Yep. Yeah. And repetition, and just like everything else, right? Because just you, just like changing your nervous system, changing your thought process is almost the same because it's your brain, mm-hmm. it's your mind that you're trying to change, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, repetition is key. And to, I mean, it's easy enough for us to say just you know just be positive, <laughs> think of the right things, right? <laughs> It's not that easy for somebody to really just flip the switch. And like Nancy said, you know, all of us have bad days, right? We, even able-bodied people, everybody has a bad day here Mm -hmm. and there. And it's important to let yourself experience that bad day, Mm -hmm. right? And release that stress and that frustration and anger or whatever emotions you're feeling Mm -hmm. in a healthy manner. And working out is a very healthy manner. (laughs) It is. All right. So going on to myth number six. All right. The only person affected is the one experiencing the neurological condition. Well, we know that to be completely false. Everybody in your circle is affected. Your family, your friends. Uh, sometimes even people who aren't in your circle can be affected. Your mm-hmm. coworkers, mm-hmm. right? It's really... Yeah, so there's more than one circle. So there's Mm -hmm. your immediate family and friends, the people you're really close and tight-knit with. Yeah. Uh, Then there's your wider circle, like your acquaintances. Mm -hmm. And then there's the bigger circle. It's just people who might know you from afar through, you know, social media or something like that. Yeah. Right? And I think it's important to know that your immediate circle is usually the ones that are second most affected. Yeah. And and they take uh, the beating from all of, you know... Your own emotions, I think, Bean can speak to this. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're in that state, right, there's a lot of emotions running through Mm -hmm. you. And a lot of us Canadians here are not taught how to deal with emotions, right? We're often told to ignore them. Don't cry. Boys don't cry. Don't cry. You're a big girl. 
right? Mm-hmm. Or be strong and don't worry about this and it'll, it'll get better or whatever the myths are about grief and loss and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and emotions. And so we, we usually lash out and the person who usually gets it the most is the spouse or the mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right or the parent who yeah is, the caregiver yeah or yep. the caregiver yeah whoever is your one person usually ends up getting you know the frustration the yelling and stuff like that and it's usually not directed at that person but there's nobody else to say it to so they get it because um, you feel the most comfortable with them you yeah. feel like you know you trust them yeah right so you unleash yeah and then to realize that that person, they need support and they need outlets as well. And they need, yes. you know, that community around them. It's not just the person who was injured or their life was completely altered. It's mm-hmm. not just one life. It's several it's others right here. around that. So yeah. to go alongside and support not just that person, but their family as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it's got a ripple effect yeah. right, of who was affected. And from my own personal family, like when we, when I was paralyzed, uh, it affected everybody, right? At the time I was living with my mom, my younger sister, and my younger brother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of us started going to therapy because mm-hmm. everybody had different reactions to mm-hmm. what happened. Mm-hmm. And everyone's feelings are valid, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everyone's attention went on me. And so there was some jealousy, mm-hmm. right? And there was maybe, maybe some resentment and stuff. And it kind of went both ways, right? Because I was jealous that their legs worked. I mm-hmm. was jealous that they could walk upstairs, you know? And so it, it went both ways, right? And everyone's emotions and feelings are valid. And so these are the things that you can't really say to each other because you know you're going to hurt somebody's feelings, mm-hmm. right? And so it's important to be able to have somebody who is impartial that you can talk to about this stuff and who can give you the tools. And that's why therapy, like psychologists and psychiatrists are so valued and so important because they are the ones who can give you these resources or a life coach or whoever you want to talk to. Uh, it's highly recommended that you and your inner circle or the people who are mostly affected get that support. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you're not ready for it, that's okay too. Yeah. But it's going alongside, I mean, we do a lot of peer support mm-hmm. um, through here. So it's pairing, you know, it doesn't even have to be like newly versus old injuries, mm-hmm. just people who are experiencing similar situations. Nobody's mm-hmm. situation is the same. Yeah. It, it's similar, right? Yeah. So to be able to empathize on, a, on, the, on the same level, right? Yeah. You're going through a tough situation. Uh, you're, there's two of you that are experiencing it. There's three or four of you that are, are, are seeing it and experiencing it from the outside mm-hmm. so being able to support each other that way I think is also very valuable agreed yeah because yeah it does affect every single person mm-hmm. in your circle and again has rippling effects mm-hmm. all right so uh more than one person is definitely affected mm-hmm. so then moving on to myth number seven the cost of living with a neurological condition is the same as your peers false again <laughs> I mean, just like everything else, every person is so different. Every injury is very different, right? Everyone's needs are very different. And the costs of those needs are also going to vary drastically by, one, how severe your injury is, right? Mm -hmm. And how much care you actually need. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's just take cathing, for example, Mm -hmm. right? Catheterization to pee. Um, You know, people get allotted about, I think my friends were talking about it, it's about 70 catheters, a month is what you get allotted. Now, as an able-bodied person, think about how many times you go pee. And if it had to cost you $2 to go pee every single time, how many times would you go pee? Right? 
And so like the cost, that's, that's a big part of people's cost is having to take care of your bodily functions. Mm-hmm. That's something we don't, we take for granted. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, as an able body, your body is working in the way it's supposed to, it's supposed mm-hmm. to function. Right. Yep. And you know, as somebody with a spinal cord injury, these are things I never thought about before. Mm-hmm. Right. You put food in, something happens, poop comes out. <laughs> right. Like you just don't think about, oh, yeah. I wonder what's happening right now. And like, yeah. how's my body doing this? But yeah, those, so let's, okay, let's go back to cost. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you, it costs you to pee. It costs you to pee, it costs you to poop, it costs, you know, you need gloves, you need um, cleaning supplies, you need lube, you need uh, pads, mm-hmm. proper, you know, adapted clothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this wheelchair that I'm sitting on costs more than my car, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. just all these things cost so much money and every, like every person's wheelchair is different. So if you're in a power chair, that's vastly different than a manual chair, Mm -hmm. increasing the cost almost threefold, sometimes more, right? Depending on the, if you want the Cadillac brand, the power chair. It's a very very fancy car. (laughs) Yeah, very fancy car. (laughs) Yeah. And yes, some of these are subsidized, but... Most of them are not. I mean, through, okay, so for a manual wheelchair, my chair, I bought it in 2014, Mm -hmm. cost me about just under $6,000. I paid for all of it out of my pocket and because I wasn't covered because I, whatever, I got another chair. So, but the government will give you up to $3,600 for a wheelchair, depending on which category you fall into of their funding things, right? So if you are a permanent disability that you're going to be a longtime wheelchair user, uh, you can fall into category D and then so they'll like, you know what, we'll just give you $3,600. Don't quote me on the number 36, I think it's thirty-two dollars to $3,600. Uh, towards your wheelchair, mm-hmm. right? Which does help because mm-hmm. anything is better than nothing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, this was f- six years ago I bought this. This same chair now is at least $10,000. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, yes, they do help a little bit, but then try also trying to get that funding takes months and months and months, mm-hmm. six months at least. And there's not a lot there to help with the big expenditures. So the bottom line is your cost of living is way higher than somebody who's able-bodied. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. And my income is slightly drastically lower than most able-bodied people. <laughs> All right. Uh, myth, which leads us into myth number eight, the healthcare system pays for everything. <laughs> so we do have public healthcare in Canada. We do. But what does it pay for in terms of a neurologic condition uh well does it okay. pay for your catheters no well yes you get do get allotted some catheters per month or whatever um and like i personally don't know about that process because i don't have to cast thankfully mm-hmm. um but i know i've talked to a lot of my friends who go through the process and i think you have to get reassessed every year or every two years mm-hmm. um and they just assess whether you need to cath more or cath less. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, here they also teach people to reuse catheters. It's terrible. This is the only province in Canada that teaches people to reuse catheters and wash them with dish soap. But then I have some people, who, some of my friends who do reuse their catheters and it works very well for them. They are limited or reduced number of UTIs mm-hmm. and also reduces the number of catheters they have, right? But then on the flip side, I have some friends who are very prone to UTIs. And so they're going through catheters like crazy, right? Because, you know, one of my friends, she said, if the tip of the catheter touches anything, 
before it touches my urethra, it's going in the garbage, mm -hmm. right? Because, I mean, it minuscule things cause UTIs, right? Well, germs are the invisible particles we can't see. Exactly. So, I mean, most of us know now yep. that, you know, germs and viruses <laughs> live on everything. Yeah, they do. And so, you know, she's going through catheters like crazy because she's paranoid of getting a UTI. So what's the greater expense, a UTI or going through thousands of catheters, mm -hmm. right? Um, as far as, like, you know... In Canada, we are a lot better off than a lot of other countries. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. I've talked to a bunch of people in India, a couple of people in Pakistan um, with spinal cord injuries, and it's very humbling, right? Mm -hmm. It really puts things in perspective. Uh, they can't even go outside their house mm -hmm. because it's a dirt road, no accessibility anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we often complain about accessibility here and complain about things here, but we do have it a lot better than mm -hmm. a lot of places. Obviously, lots of room to improve, but we do have it better. Healthcare will pay for, say you have a traumatic spinal cord injury, you're in a car accident, mm -hmm. right? You get airlifted by STARS or mm -hmm. the, uh, and you end up at a hospital, they do surgery. Uh, all of that is paid for. All of that is free, right? And then you go, you do your recovery in the acute care hospital, you get sent to the rehab hospital, all of that is free. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in that sense, we are very lucky because mm -hmm. you go south of the border and you're paying for all that stuff, yep. right? And that will bankrupt a lot of families and, mm -hmm. you know, sends people into situations that make having a spinal cord injury even worse. So as much as, you know, things here are not the best, Healthcare does pay for, I guess, the necessities. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, and not fully. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's my answer. <laughs> all right. And then that brings us to our ninth myth that as people with spinal cord injuries or those with disabilities can't have sex, it's. This is a big question. This is a very common question, especially on online dating sites. <laughs> Often one of the first questions you get, which is kind of rude. But <laughs> yeah, most people with disabilities can have sex. A lot of people do not have sensation, but a lot of people do. Um, for females, obviously, it's a little bit easier to have sex. Um, for males, there's a lot of supplements that you can take in order to make sex possible. There's a lot of um, pills out there, um, and I mean, right now there's obviously there's lots of options available mm -hmm. for men. I'm not going to go into all of them. I think that that is a whole episode on its own, which we will probably do a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of options out there, and people. I think there's that misconception of that people with spinal cord injuries or men, mostly men with spinal cord injuries, can't have sex. That's completely false. Yes, they can. Um, and then there's the stigma part of it where you're almost immediately thought of as asexual, that you don't need, you don't need sex, you don't need love, you don't need, um, intimacy, right? Cuddling, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. People just automatically assume that, oh, okay, now it's just like, cause you're sitting in metal that maybe you become metal, right? <laughs> like you don't need, like that we're basic, we're humans too, right? You need all those basic things that every human craves and wants. And so that's a big myth that we want to debunk that like, it's not only just about sex, but like people want relationships, mm -hmm. they want to have kids, they can mm -hmm. have kids. Uh, there's lots of things out there that, you know, you can do. All right. So our last myth that we're going to address today is that um, people with disabilities don't work. 
That's also very false. I think our system has been set up to make people with disabilities not want to work. Or make it more challenging to be accepted into the workplace. Yep. yep. But a lot of people with disabilities work. A lot of people have careers and, you know, not just, you know, a lot of people do labor jobs, which is totally cool too. But there's lots of people with disabilities who are surgeons, nurses, mm -hmm. lawyers, judges, city council, MLAs, MPs, right? Like there's people of all levels with disabilities working. Um, and there's a lot of people that don't work <laughs> who are on H or other income support systems and stuff. And I mean, every situation is very different, right? And so... I think it just brings us back to the diversity of the able-bodied world, right? Yeah. It exists in the disability world as well. Yeah. There's a whole spectrum of people who work, don't work, go to school, yeah. do all sorts of different things, and they're not limited by their disability. Yep. Yeah. Well, disabilities don't discriminate, right? Yeah. It's going to attack every single person of every race, gender, socioeconomic well, status. Hopefully not every single person. No, but... <laughs> of. <laughs> Is that what I said? Yeah. Oops. <laughs> No, let's take that back. <laughs> that would level the playing field. <laughs> it can affect people from... Anyone. Anyone. <laughs> it can affect yeah. anyone. anyone. All right, now to have a little bit of fun and address some pet peeves that wheelchair users have. Yeah, so sure. we're specifically addressing wheelchair users in this one, so... Yeah. All right. Let's just talk about the first pet peeve. You're too young and pretty to be in a wheelchair. Oh, yeah. Disability etiquette 101. Don't say that. <laughs> I mean, people, I think they want to make you feel better. And it's never, I don't think it ever comes from a place of like maliciousness, right? It comes from a place of like, oh, if, this is my thought process of what that person is thinking when they say that to people with disabilities is like, oh, like this girl, she's so pretty, or this guy's so handsome, but he's in a wheelchair. Oh, maybe I should go tell them that they're really handsome or pretty, and then that will make them feel better about themselves. <laughs> I feel like that's a that's the thought process that that person is thinking. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> maybe, maybe. That's we my thought on it. Um, is it any one specific like demographic that's approaching you, or is it kind of anybody and everyone... I guess it's situational, right? It for myself, it's often older women who come and tell me that I'm pretty or whatever. Um, if I'm in a bar, different situation, right? Lots of dudes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so like, I think it's situational, but I, it also could just be random. Yeah. So what would you rather people say rather than you're too, you're too pretty to be in a wheelchair? What would you rather they say? Because they still want to give you the compliment. Oh, good question. I mean, you can just say, hey, I, I think you're really beautiful. So stop. why, why <laughs> bring in the wheelchair? Yeah, yeah, just stop there. Don't say, for a girl in a wheelchair. Right? Yeah. yeah. It would it, be like saying, you're very pretty. I love your legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? You're very pretty. Thank goodness you're walking. <laughs> Look at you walk. <laughs> oh, people. <laughs> All right, so that's number one. Number two, you must get a lot of help in order to take care of your children and clean the house. So this is people coming up and saying these things. Yeah. So a lot of these pet peeves, I asked my uh, wheelie girls. <laughs> I was like, yo, tell me some myths and like, what are people saying yeah. to you guys, right? And yeah, so this is one of my friends and she 
people just come up to you because they think that you automatically need help. And I've been through this situation many times. Actually, yesterday when I went to Canadian Tire, right, I was getting back into my vehicle and my vehicle is all automated. And some guy came up to me. He's like, he's like, oh, miss, can I help you? I was like, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm good. And he's like, but please, can I help you? I was like, no, dude, like there's literally nothing you can do right now. <laughs> like, I'm good. I'm like, I'm good, right? But it's just like some people, some usually empathetic people feel the need that they have to help. And like, so when, so my girlfriend who is paralyzed has two young kids, right? Is out and about with her kids in the community and stuff. People often are like, oh my goodness, like, where's the nanny? Like, where's your help? Why, how are you doing this on your own? Especially when her kids were infants, mm-hmm. right? Or toddlers, because toddlers are unruly and running around, right? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you just, you adapt and your kids adapt too, right? They learn to like not be so unruly, I think sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have my kids, so I can't say anything. <laughs> All right. That brings us to number three, personal space. <laughs> What's your pet peeve that people always do to you? <laughs> yeah, leaning on your chair, pushing your handles. So a lot of people with wheelchair or a lot of wheelchair users don't have handles on the back of their chair because they've been pushed too many times by random strangers. I have handles on my wheelchair still because I don't like to push myself if I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, wheeling gets real old real fast, okay? <laughs> Um, but I've experienced it too, where someone will just come up behind you, take, grab your chair, grab your handles and just start pushing you. And I've actually been pushed down a couple of stairs at a club. I was really, really mad that day. (laughs) No kidding. Very mad. Rightfully so. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then also people just like in your face. Right. And especially now with all this COVID stuff, I really like that we have to be six feet away from people because people often don't really respect your private, your bubble, especially when you're at crotch level, right? <laughs> like when you're standing at a, at a, like eye level with everybody else, people recognize that you're there and they often, some people are close talkers and stuff, but most people will give you your space. But when you're like in a sitting position, a lot of people don't see you, first of all. And then their, their legs are right here and then they turn around and then their butt's in your face, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they'll like somebody, this happened to me so much time, somebody will be backing up in front of me. I'm like, you're going to end up sitting in my lap, man. Like I just <laughs> put my hands up to try to stop them. But, yeah, personal space. People often, yeah, just don't know to give you any. Just don't grab people's handles. <laughs> fair enough fair enough and then do people talk any differently to you because you're in a wheelchair yes there's a few different scenarios that happen someone will either ignore you completely right and either only talk to the person that you're with um or if they have no choice but to talk to you they will not acknowledge you no no eye contact or anything uh which makes you feel not good um and then there's the people that will um, like patronize you and like talk down to you mm-hmm. in like a childlike manner, right? Like, oh, you're so cute. What are you doing here? And, you know, just kind of like talking to you as you were, as if you were a child. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, I'm a 38 year old woman. <laughs> I'm not a little kid. <laughs> like, I know I look like I'm sitting in a stroller. <laughs> this is not a stroller. <laughs> Clear differences there. <laughs> yeah. And then, 
I don't know, people often just don't know how to react around people with disabilities, right? And so that's why it's so important for us to have these conversations and to talk about etiquette around people with disabilities because people are just people and you just talk to them how is, as if you were to be talking to an able-bodied person. And I try to instill that in people's minds. But yeah, so think of it just talking to your friends, talking to your family. Yeah. Talk to them the same way. Yeah, exactly, because they're just regular people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a big thing that we, you know, practice and preach here at Ryu mm-hmm. is don't talk to them any differently unless mm-hmm. they need you to slow down. If mm-hmm. they need you to slow down and they've asked for it or they've, you know, acknowledged it in some way, then you slow down. But initially, you're going to talk to them as you would anybody else, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And, like, I mean, here, you know, we make we make fun of our clients. We joke around with them. Like, with them. I'm not saying we make fun <laughs> of our clients behind their backs. With them. Like, we joke around, right? Yep. We poke fun and, you know, we tease people and they tease us back and stuff. And it's normal banter and it's a normal kind of gym environment. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we, I, well, I've had people say to me quite a few times, like, I just love how you treat your, how you talk to your clients, right? Remember at PA, they said that numerous times. Mm-hmm. I just love how you guys talk to your clients. And I'm like, well, I talk to them like they're my friends. Yep. Right? Like, how, how do you do, how do you talk to people? Yep. <laughs> if you think this is good, what are you doing? <laughs> right? Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, a lot of people, you, they don't do it, you know, out of malintent or no. anything like that. And sometimes you don't even realize you're doing it. Yeah. So being the good friend that points out, hey, you talk differently to this person than you do to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And and just being aware of how you talk to people and just, you know, maybe taking that step back and be like, did I really just say that? Yeah. Right? And and it's okay to apologize yeah. or to say, you know, hey, I'm not sure how to approach the situation. How would you? And ask that person. Yep. How do you want to be addressed? And usually it's, you know, by their name or, yeah. hey, I'm so-and-so. <laughs> yeah. it's, it usually has nothing to do with the disability. Yeah. Right? See the person first. Yeah. Right? It should always be the person first. Yeah, exactly. One of my girlfriends was saying that she was asked, so do you want to be called like a paraplegic or like what do, or do you want to be called like disabled? What would you like to be called? And she's like, I'd be like to be called Tanel, my name. <laughs> okay, that's what I'd like to be called. And then that just comes back to the stigma and mm-hmm. the preconceived notions and the beliefs that people have about people with disabilities. And, it, you know, this is a great time to talk about, like, all we're always talking about being self-aware, right? Mm-hmm. Doing the self-work mm-hmm. to really recognize what kind of thoughts you're having because your thoughts turn into words, mm-hmm. right? And into actions. And so if you can control it, which you're the only person who can control mm-hmm. your thoughts, right? Yep. Be cognizant of it and always, like, change to be better. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. So there's a lot on that topic, but I mean, it's a topic that deserved a lot of attention, <laughs> right? Um, so now we go into uh, the pet peeve of you need help with everything. Yeah. Well, we kind of touched on that a bit, but yeah, yeah people will always, always ask you if you need help. And like a few years ago, I joked because like, everyone out of the, I don't know where these people would come out of. They'd be like, Will, do you need any help? And I'm like, no, it's okay. But I could literally be murdering somebody and someone would be like, hey, is there anything I can do to help you? Or like, (laughs) you know, because people are just very helpful, right? And uh, which is nice. It is nice to see that people actually care and that people are genuinely nice. 
But on the flip side, it's just like, you don't need help with every single thing. And I posted a video, I think last week, and it was, it's pretty funny. It's about this, you know, this wheelchair guy comes up to these set of double doors. And then this guy comes running out from the side, opens the double doors and is now in the middle of these double doors and just super awkward and like totally in this guy's way. And this has happened so many times to almost every single wheelchair user out there, Mm -hmm. right? Because people want to help, but it's just like, well, my arms work, I can open my own door for myself. And like, if you are going to open a door, like learn to do it properly. (laughs) So somebody can actually get through, right? So like, I was talking with my wheelchair friends a while ago, and I'm like, you know, it's funny because we're always kind of kind of hypocritical, right? If somebody asks for help, we kind of, we laugh about it. Sometimes we complain, oh, people always ask me for help, if I need help. And then if somebody walks by and they don't offer you help, (laughs) like, well, what kind of person is this that they didn't even offer me help? <laughs> it's a, on the flip side. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's important to know that there's, you know, things that they do every single day they don't necessarily need help for. If they're struggling, mm-hmm. that's the time to approach and say, hey, mm-hmm. I've noticed that you're struggling. Do you need some help? Yeah. Right? So it's, it's not necessarily just like running up out of the middle of nowhere and being like, you know, I'm going to do my good deed for the day yeah. and be like, hey, I'm going to help you whether you yeah. want it or not. It's not forcing yourself on somebody, but it's, it's being aware of your surroundings and understanding, yeah. are they struggling or are they just living? Yep. Right? And a lot of people with disabilities will ask for help. Mm-hmm. If we need help, we will ask, mm-hmm. right? I've done the same if I had, I mean, today you unloaded the things out of my trunk mm-hmm. today, right? Because I needed help. <laughs> so you ask for help. Yeah. But I think, yeah, generally people just want to be very helpful and they want to be able to provide and do something. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they are asking people if they want help. And I'm not saying stop asking people if they want help. Right. But take a second to read the situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So pet peeve. The next one we're going to address is, I mean, this comes back to how do you talk to people? I'm sure you've heard this <clears throat> numerous times. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Lots of things. Like, I don't know where you want to start here. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how somebody more seasoned handles that answer. <laughs> but if you're newly injured and you hear that, what are you thinking? Well, you already think that you're damaged. Mm-hmm. You feel damaged. Society makes you feel damaged. Mm-hmm. And when somebody asks you what's wrong with you, you know, people, some people might just all right say, oh, I had a spinal cord injury. I was in a car accident, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Right. And they don't really think too much into the question. Um, but then there's, you know, it's not, a, it's not a bad thing to ask, you know, somebody about their disability. Right. It's how you ask, though. Using those words, what's wrong with you, is very offensive because you're implying that something is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I mean, especially if somebody is born with a disability, then it's even more insulting because nothing's wrong with them. This is how they are, Mm -hmm. right? This is how they were born. This is how they are. And yeah, it's just not a good question. Why don't you can just ask like, hey, like, you know, why are you using a wheelchair, right? Mm-hmm. So let's let's give a few alternatives for people that are approaching parents with kids. Okay. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. You're so you're approaching a parent with a kid with a disability, and you can just say like, "Hey, you know, tell me more about your kid," or "I'm interested to know the story or your your kids your child's story." Would you mind sharing? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's lots of ways to ask. Your tone makes a big impact in mm-hmm. that. Your body language. 
And the reason why you're asking, Mm -hmm. if you're asking because you're just super curious and you're, then you're going to go gossip about it with other people, like that kind of shows, right? Mm -hmm. But some people just genuinely want to know or like, Hey, your kid's super cute, right? Because most, most kids with disabilities are super cute. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of able-bodied kids are too. I'm not discriminating. Okay. All the kids are cute. (laughs) But you know, with the glasses and stuff, like they're so cute and the little tiny wheelchairs. (laughs) I'm a little biased. (laughs) We may see a few of them. (laughs) Yeah, we see a lot of them. (laughs) So let's bring it back to the adult side of things. Mm -hmm. So somebody's coming up to you. They're curious. Would you rather they ask or would you rather they not ask? I would rather they ask me, for sure. Because I want them to tell them the truth, Mm -hmm. right? And... Again, for me, it's about spreading awareness and like what happened with me can literally happen to anybody on this planet, mm-hmm. right? And so often it just gives people a little bit of like eye opening, like, oh my goodness, okay, like this could happen to anybody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for myself, I want people to ask me, but I know that there's a lot of people out there who are grumpy and who've been asked a million times and they don't want to be asked anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's totally fine too, right? And that's kind of a hit and miss and there's no really like... An, a sign that you can use to be like, I'm okay with you asking me. (laughs) But I would prefer people to come up to me and ask me, and especially with like little kids, you know, kids are very curious and I'm a kid magnet. And so they'll come up to me and like grab my my chair or like, just be like, why are you in here? What is this? Right. And I always just tell them like, Oh, I got sick. I got sick a few years ago and my legs stopped working. And, but by the time before you can even get to that point, the parents are always like, no, 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 like, don't say anything. Don't ask anything. Right. And then with that reaction that the parent gives the kid, the response that the kid has is fear. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, oh my God, I did something wrong. And they associate fear with people with disabilities. Right. Right. And so then, then they're going to go around the corner and they're going to tell them a lie about why that person's in a wheelchair. And I've said this to numerous parents in the moment when this is happening, like, no, it's fine. Like, I don't mind answering your, answering your kids' questions. And I would prefer to tell them the truth rather than you go around the corner and lie to them. Mm-hmm. Right. And because that's where the stigma begins. That's where the fear starts is kids aren't, they're taught to hate, right? Hatred is a taught um, emotion. And so when you elicit that sense of fear, when your kid is innocently asking somebody with a disability why they're in a wheelchair or using a cane or whatever they're asking, it sends that wrong, it starts, it starts that uh, process of the stigma. Mm-hmm. And so let your kids ask the questions. You know, if the person they're asking to is a grumpy person and gives them a sour answer, I'm sorry, I apologize to you on behalf of that person, right? Because, I mean, people are people. <laughs> Some people are going to be grumpy. But encourage the people, encourage your kids to have those conversations and, you know, go and make friends with a kid with a disability if you're with your kids, right? Get involved in the community and expose your kids to other different types of people because that's how inclusion really happens. It's all very relevant, right? It's, you know, stems from the one question that can spiral a Mm -hmm. whole stereotype and stigma from Mm -hmm. what's wrong with you or what's wrong with your kid, Mm -hmm. right? That spirals this into, you know, the giant kind of issue it is today, right? Is there's them and there's us and there's a divide, Whereas it should be, you know, inclusion really means 
there is, you know, very little difference other than the way you move, right? Exactly. Or how you communicate, right? Might be different, but yeah. we're still all people and we're, you know, all the same and, we're, and we enjoy a lot of the same things and we all interact together. Yep. Then we have one of uh, accessibility. <laughs> Lack of accessibility <laughs> is the pet peeve. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is also a whole conversation in itself, but generally speaking, right, it's... The, the world is not designed for wheels. No, it is not designed for wheels. I mean, thankfully in North America, we have it better off than a lot of other countries. Yeah, yeah, we do. Still lots of room to improve for sure, mm -hmm. but... Yeah, we definitely do have it a lot better than most places. I mean, here, one of my biggest complaints is snow removal, right? We're a winter city, and when you're stuck in your house for eight months and you're not even able to go because your neighbor didn't shovel or sidewalk, mm -hmm. it's, it's very annoying and very frustrating. And then, you know, as I mean, like in Europe, it's very old architecture, mm -hmm. not accessible. And so I've talked to, I know there's a guy <clears throat> in Dusseldorf, Germany that we're friends on Facebook. Yeah. I've asked him, how do you get around? Like, <laughs> Europe is not accessible. And he's like, well, you just make it work. You just figure it out. Right? And so, I mean, that's as humans, we adapt, we, we figure it out. But yeah, accessibility is a huge pet peeve for a lot of people. Uh, it just means, you know, living a life with a mobility or with a, sorry, with a disability just takes more planning. Mm -hmm. Lots of calling, lots more planning. You know, I'm constantly calling to see if people have accessible bathrooms. And accessible to one person is not accessible to another person, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, we'll just call it universal design. But uh, it, it is a big pet peeve for a lot of people. Things are changing. And uh, because we're advocating and we're making this change happen, that accessibility and people with disabilities and mobility needs are actually being thought of while buildings and stuff are being designed. Mm -hmm. so it's nice. Are they being thought of? Are they being included? To what level are you know companies moving forward with it? It depends on the company. Um, Let's take Rogers Arena here, for example, right? It's our, it's our newest arena here. It costs $400 million. They consulted the Accessibility Advisory Committee on the accessibility of the arena, but it's not super accessible. There's lots of things that they could have done better um, had they had a few people of different disabilities come through and be on the planning side of things or just go through their blueprints or their virtual things before they actually built the arena. Um, like my friend Tanel, she is an interior designer and she's taken um, some courses on like code, accessibility code and stuff. And so she has consulted on Langley's airport for accessibility and she's been offering a consulting services uh, to other companies and architectural firms and stuff that want that opinion. Um, same here, Voices of Albertans with Disability Society, they also offer accessibility um, assessments. Mm -hmm. uh, the Rick Hansen Foundation, I think they also do that too. Um, so there's now there's more organizations and more people going out there and like, you know, talking to these people and being like, hey, mm -hmm. you need to be accessible and I can help you make sure that it is actually accessible. Yeah. And here's what it means. Right. To be accessible. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, yeah, there's lots more pet peeves and there's a lot more myths. And so if you guys have any and you want to share them with us, definitely hop on our Instagram. We're at R-E-Y-U-P-R-C, R-E-Y-U-P-R-C. Shoot us an email or a message through our website and www.reu.ca. And uh, we can have another episode with these because we'd love to hear your myths and your pet peeves. Um, these are just some of the ones that we came up with and that we would discuss and, uh, and try to mitigate and, uh, try to really get rid of. Yeah. So they're important conversations we need to have because these are a lot of the misconceptions that are out there and that are prevalent and Mm -hmm. have prevailed for a long, long time that don't need to be here anymore. Agreed. No, they do not. (laughs) It's time for a new thought process. Yeah. So it's largely about education, right? Spreading the awareness, letting people know this is not true Mm -hmm. and this is what um, the truth is instead. Yeah. And this is, I mean, these are our our opinions and mm-hmm. our thoughts and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the stuff we talked about earlier, the doves have scientific basis behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all of our stuff is open for discussion. So mm-hmm. and we would love to discuss with you. So if you want to, holla at us. But thanks for listening. <laughs> thanks for listening and catch you next time.